Ben, thanks a bunch for coming on tonight. Yeah, you bet. I uh, I just put my kids down to sleep, so I don't know if they're actually sleeping or not. So I'm chilling out in the garage right now. I don't know if y'all have kids, but if you do, you understand. Is oh. it is it a problem that I can only see Ben from the eyes up? Oh, is this a video? Are we recording video too? Yeah, we record both. Okay. Well, they can hang out with me sitting next to my refrigerator <laughs> in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> Come on in. Grab yourself a beer. <laughs> I don't mind if I do either. <laughs> yeah, crack one. So I know we're going to be talking about films and stuff, but I'm going to be compulsively watching this uh, this webcam over in the corner of my screen here, watching the, the Northern Lights, because I got a time lapse going, and I think it's going to be the best one yet. Right now, as we speak? Wow. I'm jealous. I've never seen those before. I've got a traffic light, so I can't quite see them out my window here. But you guys, I'll look at you guys instead. That is too cool. It's like well, it's like one of the best places on the planet to view the the lights. Well, cheers to Drew and everybody wishing he was there. All us poor bastards that aren't him right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we want ideas from from listeners about potential guests, but we also want ideas about trivia questions from from listeners so we haven't got the email address quite figured out yet we can't just give you our general email address because ron will it's got to be just coming to me right yeah and i don't want to give out drew's personal email address so stay tuned on that one but what i could probably do is on this show notes page we will get it figured out but if you've got a trivia question that would be awesome, a good stumper for everybody. Just go to the show notes page for this podcast. And at the very bottom under the link section, I'll put in a link to the trivia email, which Drew's going to set up. And that way you can submit that and none of us contestants can see it. I already failed. Yeah, sure you guys yeah. failed at because, doozies. because I am the only one that would cheat if I saw the question. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've been known to check that email address every now and then too. And I would, I can't say that I wouldn't look. Well, we uh, just need to remove temptation. Right. <laughs> What'd you say, Brandon, based on what? I said, based on my handicap that I'm going to need, I am not beneath it. <laughs> so we need to up our security, our cyber security on the trivia here. Well, it'll be pretty easy I'll if you, you create the, the password. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two asks of the of the listeners, but we also have the the Precision Camera sponsorship, and that promotion is still going on. So if you got all this Christmas money, or Hanukkah money, or money in general, or you won the lottery like Ron does, or hasn't tries. yet, but will win. Tries. I, I'm going to win it five bucks at a time. That's that is basically what's going on right now. But if you got all this money, go to Precision and you can still use the 50 off of 500 code to get $50 off of your next $500 expenditure from Precision. All right, let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. We've got a full boat tonight, I think. Uh, we may have lost one to Mother Nature, but uh, we've got... Myself, Ron Hayes, coming to you from Wyoming. Michael Morrow from Colorado. Jason Loftus is at home in Utah. 
Drew Hamilton is somewhere in Manitoba. We're not sure if he's still with us or not. And then we've got Brandon Day also in Colorado. Hey, Drew, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I can see you guys. Okay, we just can't see you, but we can hear you. Oh, maybe I have my camera turned. No, camera's turned on. Yeah, you probably have the northern lights affecting your... Uh... He's got interference. The webcam's going crazy. Aurora interference. Why, why don't you tell us what's going crazy? Because when we got on the first got on the podcast that's all you talked about well so i've <laughs> so i've been doing these uh anytime it's clear I've, I've been trying to do the the full sky time lapses of the northern lights here and so i've just been going and i'm not i'm being kind of lazy about it i'm not driving more than like 10 minutes from my house <laughs> and i just throw it up and leave it out there and go check it in a couple hours and bring it back and process it into time lapse and this is the first like really good show like i've got the webcam over here playing so i i can go set up the camera and then come back to my house and be all warm and chat with you guys and all that stuff while i'm i'm actively i'm working here actually technically kind of sort of not really that's a stretch you're producing admit, content but, yes i'm contenting uh while i'm here with you guys But I might be a little distracted by the webcam I've got playing over here. Aron, you're muted, I think. <laughs> Give that's us why, a hard time. That's why he couldn't <laughs> hear me telling him uh, we're all working. Special guest tonight coming to us from Texas with Finn and Fur Films, Ben Masters. Ben, welcome to the show, and thank you for your time tonight. Good to be here. Excited to talk about film and wildlife. We first, well, technically, we first heard about you from one of your cameraman that we met up in Rocky Mountain National Park while we were filming elk. Michael shot with him for quite a while and then they came up the trail once the the light got harsh and um, we're hoping to have him on at some point also as as one of our young guns. We try to get some younger folks on here and talk about the the fresh look at wildlife photography but after that we uh, actually on my way home from there listen to you on the master wildlife photography or excuse me, the master wildlife filmmaker podcast and um, just listening to the, the stories that you were telling and the passion that you have and you're doing this all kind of on your own dime. I mean, you've got people that are supporting you, but you, you got started and, and it's, it's basically a passion project that's exploded at this point. Yeah, that that's about accurate. Saying I've done it on my own isn't isn't true though, because I've got a really phenomenal team that I get to work with, and you know anybody who's been in the film business knows that that's that's very much a team sport. So uh, mm-hmm. I certainly would not have had near the successes that I've had without being able to have had the good fortune to surround myself with you know some of the best wildlife filmmakers and, and filmmakers, uh, in, in my opinion, in the world. Yeah. And that, that wasn't the part piece that I was getting at. You guys have kind of financially, uh, taken this burden on and you're just kind of running with it. And you do have some people that support your projects and you know, that as you, you can't, but you're not filming for some big publisher in, uh, you know, in Europe, you're, you're doing this on your own. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't been able to get any of my films pre-sold to be quite honest, Ron, like I would love to, you know, take a good idea to Nat Geo or BBC and walk away with, you know, a $500,000 an episode series. Um, 
which, you know, is fairly low budget for a lot of the Nat history stuff. But mm-hmm. I just have just been really unsuccessful at pitching stuff. Um, and, you know, that comes after I've been involved in four feature documentaries and, you know, I've directed 15, 20 short films. And uh, I still just struggle getting stuff financed ahead of, of producing it. And to such an extent where I just don't even, I don't even plan on it. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, just looking at the writing on the wall, pretty much all of the natural history filmmaking is made by the same five to seven companies. And there's just not much room for, for new people in that, that are getting contracts. And that's just the reality of what the natural history filmmaking space is, is you're not going to land that big contract. I think though, with uh, deep in the heart, that certainly had to open some eyes, right? Because I had heard about that right when it first came out, you know, all my buddies in the film world that we all shoot for the same companies you're talking about. They're like, Hey, have you seen deep in the heart? It's really, really cool. And it done really well. So hopefully that's one of those pieces that's going to open some doors for you. I hope so. I hope so too. And, uh, yeah, I'll report back here in a few years. <laughs> if it's gotten easier or not, but I mean, unbranded was also awesome. The river and the wall was also awesome. And, you know, I just haven't had any success at all pitching stuff beforehand with the exception of we did a, a 50 minute film for PBS nature recently called American Ocelot. But even that one, that was a 30 minute completed short film that then they saw and were like, Hey, this is cool. I want to extend that out to out into a 50 minute, uh, which, which worked out really well. Um, and I mean, I, I just think that's just, and I, I hear people often talk about like, Oh, I've got this great idea. How do I pitch Nat Geo or how do I pitch the BBC? And it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be that guy that crushes dreams, but it's just one of those (laughs) things where the chances of somebody at Nat Geo being like, Oh, awesome. This is a great idea. Let's, you know, put together a multi-million dollar deal. They're just pretty non-existent without like a, proven track record and already kind of being in that system or there's the Mm -hmm. acquisition side where you do what we do, which is figure out how to make it and then uh, take it to market afterwards. Let's talk about the American ocelot because that's one of the species that with deep in the heart, that's one of the species that intrigued me. Um, And we were talking before the show and, and Mike may put some of this, uh, some of that conversation in the show as we go on. We were talking about the networking that's that goes on sometimes. How did you guys find out about these ocelot? Because when you think about film and ocelot, you think of Central and South America. I mean, you don't think of Texas. That is definitely not the first place that comes to mind. Well, in Texas, whenever you think about ocelots, you think about Texas, uh, mainly because Texans tend to think about Texas more than the average person who lives in a state <laughs> thinks about their state. But Texas is the only state that has a viable breeding population of ocelots. Every once in a while, you'll get one in Arizona, but they're not like, you know, they're not there. Uh, but you know, here in Texas, historically, we had a very large ocelot distribution. They're across East Texas. And then, you know, down there in the lower Rio Grande Valley, 
for a variety of factors, their range has greatly shrunken to where they're now only found deep in deep South Texas, kind of uh, in the Port Mansfield area, and then in the lower lower Laguna Madre or the Laguna Madre National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, so you know we we know where they're at. And it's definitely a huge source of pride, like as a Texan to, to have that in our state. Now, how did you guys go about finding the areas that were frequented enough to, to be able to capture some footage and some phenomenal footage at that? There was quite a bit of luck involved, to be really honest. And at the time when I was doing it, I didn't realize how lucky we were, but now looking back on it, I... I, I see it, but um, we reached out to a ranch that uh, is called the East Foundation, and their mission is stewardship through through ranching and promoting like best ranching practices and best wildlife management practices. And they're you know as great of a land steward that exists on planet Earth, and they've got a big cattle ranch, and then you know the western half of their place is this really big thick brush that these ocelots love uh it's called tamalipan thorn scrub and it's kind of intermixed underneath these big oak moths that they have and uh that's where the ocelots like to live and on their place they've got about two dozen or so and i actually um knew some of them through I knew some of the scientists at the at the East Foundation through some of the mutual friends that I had at the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, which is uh, uh, a wildlife institute based in Kingsville that produces you know a whole bunch of phenomenal biologists and scientists and does amazing research all over the country. And uh, their feline program manager Michael Tuez. Um, he set me up with the meeting with, um, with, with the East foundation and said, all right, let's, let's figure out a way to where we can actually try to try to film these ocelots. Cause I was committed. I had, you know, 10 months that I had set aside to, to camera trap them. Um, so everybody agreed to it and he had this one cat in particular that he had historic collar data on. Uh, we, we know the ocelots very well down there. We know you know, where they're at, about how many of them there are, where they live, um, almost to the number. But this one cat, uh, beautiful female, you know, like 12 years old, she had a very small home range and she had recently lost her, her collar. So we would not be filming a collared cat, but we knew kind of where she liked to go. And she had also just started giving off uh, indications of a den site. So Mike was like, Hey, this is perfect. This is a cat that has a small home range that may have kittens right now. And, uh, we went in, set up camera traps and this was my first real camera trapping experience. And we're just, was just met with failure. Um, just time and again, you know, they, they weren't working right. Uh, we would have focus drift. We would have, um, you know, the ocelot walk through, but the, trigger didn't send the signal to the camera or like the light at nighttime didn't shine down and just really frustrating experience. And then about, uh, about six weeks into it, we got our first really good ocelot shot. It was an evening shot 
this beautiful Tom just walking right at the camera. And that was about whenever we figured out our, our, our camera trap setups. And, uh, it was shortly after that, that we got the first video of that mom walking around with the kitten in her mouth. And then we just had this amazing eight months afterward of getting to, to, to video this, you know, this mom ocelot raise her young, which, you know, is just one of the coolest things as, as, as a filmmaker is getting to see stuff nobody ever gets to see before. And like, not only was this the first video of ocelot that has ever existed in the United States, it was actually behaviors and getting to see everything that this mom did to raise its kitten. It was a really special experience. Was it a hundred percent camera trap? That, that sequence there with the mom was all camera trap. There was a water hole at a different part of the property that we had, um, um, scheduled. There was this big Tom that was coming in like clockwork every three nights. And, you know, it, he didn't really come in at a particular time each night, but it was every three nights. So our best camera operator, uh, or our most experienced camera operator, Skip Hobby, uh, he went down there and got set up and he filmed that male come in and, and drinking water uh, and was able to get this really beautiful tight shot. Uh, as well as a wide shot of the ocelot coming in and drinking. So we have one shot, and uh, that does not mean that we didn't put in the time. We spent mm -hmm. many, many weeks in the brush trying to get long lens ocelots, but we're, we're unsuccessful. We've got tons of bobcats, tons of coyotes, but never did get an ocelot. I shot on that ranch for an episode of The Mating Game, and it was on the wild turkeys. Oh, cool. And, but they were telling us all about the ocelots and we were thinking, oh man, it'd be so cool if we were just having to be in a blind somewhere and here and that what you're talking about with that scrub. I mean, I don't know how you just even setting up the camera traps had to be a process just to weasel your way down into these, just the thicket. We didn't get into those thickets too much just because the turkeys weren't there, but with the sand dunes that are all around there. And then of course you got the coast right there you can see how that is perfect habitat, right? And it's enough space where you can actually live as an ocelot and be somewhat safe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's some cool country down there. It really is. And great job on that sequence too. I didn't know you shot that sequence. That was, that was a cool sequence. I didn't know all that behavior. I was like, are you telling me a turkey made a complex? Is this country <laughs> this deep? <laughs> I had no idea because we interviewed a, an expert. I can't remember his name, but an expert on turkeys. And they were talking about that wingman thing. Yeah. And, I'm, and I've, I've hunted turkeys and I've been around a lot of turkeys. And you just assume that all these toms are out there. You know, they're all displaying for themselves. for themselves. But after you watch them and you see what's going on, it's like, holy moly. No, that's, there's one, one person in charge or one turkey in charge. And the rest are just there to run interference. Yeah, that was wild. It's a cool cool spot it is but that that brush is thick um you know just put on your jeans and a brush shirt and go into it and embrace the love of the ticks and uh <laughs> all the thorns and you know if you don't mind ticks and thorns it's it's wonderful i love it in there <laughs> it's the place to be you just have to 
get that around your mind. It's like whenever you go hunting in the cold, you get cold. When you go swim, you get wet. Whenever you box, you get hit. And whenever you go <laughs> looking for ocelots, you get a bunch of ticks on you. <laughs> we were there in March, and I don't think we had too many problems with ticks. And it was just right after a cold snap, too. So that probably saved our bacon a little bit. Hey, you know what? We should go back just for people who aren't aware because there is only one place in the con or not in the continent, but in the country where they can be filmed. So an ocelot is what? So an ocelot is a small cat that is about the same size as the bobcat, but more athletic and a little bit leaner. And they've got a long tail. They have um, this beautiful almost like linebacker like stripes on their head. And then they have these vertical bars that come up over the forehead. And then they've got a whole series of blotches and stripes on their face. And then running down their back, they have uh, these paralleling dorsal stripes that extend all the way from the back of their head, all the way down to their tail. And then on their sides, they have uh, just this really beautiful mixture of rosettes and splotches and spots and blots that go down to the leg which then have rings uh kind of like stripes that go down to the feet and then they have uh stripes on their tail as well and then they've got these really cool like white flags on the back of their ears and they are just these little super ninja athletes of the brush and is one of the most successful cat species on earth. Uh, they extend all the way from Texas down into Argentina. Uh, you can find them at 15,000 feet in the Amazon. You can find them on in mangroves. You can find them in cloud forests. You can find them really anywhere where there's uh, a high canopy cover. Uh, you you find ocelots and uh, yeah there's just this awesome little cat species and texas is the only place in the u.s that that currently has them so if you all watch the episode or the the feature film of deep in the heart you will see the range of the historic range of the ocelots to what it what it was at one time and then you see what it is now I mean, it's cool that they're in Texas, but it's such a small little fraction of what it used to be. Um, it's a good thing that they're still there, right? And and then who knows? I mean, you guys talk about it in the film, Deep in the Heart, where there's probably a lot more area, but a lot of those ranchers aren't willing to say they're there because it might inhibit some of their abilities to do ranching because if it's an endangered species or something, you know, that whole thing that kind of factors into it, but it's it's such a massive shrinkage of of habitat it is and you know there's 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 ranches that don't participate in the the official ocelot census that you know they, they still love their ocelot they just don't want the federal government involved in the management of their property which i understand uh, although i do wish they would get involved but um you know i think you know that opportunity to bring back ocelots and start new populations is one that I would really love to see happen in my lifetime. And one that we've been trying to, you know, get going, uh, the East foundation, the Caesar Clayburgh wildlife research Institute, they've been, uh, for many years asking, 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, like how do we get these new populations? And, you know, you got to get landowners on board. You got to get the federal government in Mexico on board, the federal government in the U.S. on board, the state government of Tamaulipas, the state government in Texas. But we are moving towards that trajectory of, you know, bringing ocelots from Mexico into the United States and, uh, you know, increasing our genetic diversity and then hopefully one day starting new populations. And, you know, the, the parallel that I like to, to look at the ocelots with is the Iberian lynx. You know, um, 20 years ago, there was fewer than 100 Iberian lynx in all of Spain and Portugal. And they captured some. They created this, this artificial or this captive breeding program. They started these new populations. And today you've got over 1,000 Iberian lynx because they took a very hands-on approach to you know starting new populations and really raising um the the numbers and i would love to see something like that with ocelots because we have a tremendous amount of potential you know habitat that they used to have that now doesn't have you know tons of traps and tons of poison or like the forest has regrown and also i feel like that's a beautiful cat that eats mice. Like it's not a wolf or a grizzly bear or something like literally everybody wants them. So it should be a slam dunk for reintroductions. This is tough because it's an endangered species and there's a lot of red tape that surrounds uh, working with that particular animal. So you, when you guys released deep in the heart, you did a lot of showings in Texas in major theaters. We did. So with that and with your ability to tell that story and for a lot of these people that are city people, especially like in Dallas or Austin or Houston that don't get out in the woods as much as some of us, was that a huge calling card to just that awareness that people are going to get just by seeing your film? That has to be a huge help in that process of the reintroduction. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we had about 50,000 people see the movie in theaters, which uh, was about four times greater than our projections, uh, which gives me a tremendous amount of hope that, like, you know, this type of content has the ability to, to compete for people's interests and, and, and for theaters to actually show it, because that's the hardest thing is actually getting them to, to screen it. Um, but, I mean, the experience of sitting down for a hundred minutes and seeing, you know, your state of, of Texas, um, and getting to see for the first time ocelots and, you know, alligator gar and these bats getting predated upon by snakes. Um, it was, it was a profound experience for the people that work in conservation or, or work in photography or the arts, but also just for the average Texan that, you know, is in real estate and like, doesn't think about wildlife all the time, but to get kind of, kind of gain a greater appreciation, uh, for the wildlife that, that we have here. And, uh, I would really love to see that model replicated in, in, in other States or in other geographical areas of, of the United States, because it was, it was profitable like that, that theatrical run, um, you know, it was in the black, which is great because that makes everything so much easier if you don't have to fundraise for it. And it also indicated to me that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. Like there is a lot of demand from the general public. Like people care about wildlife. They care about the world 
and they will go to theaters and, and see it and have a cool experience. So I want to keep doing it. Yeah. Jason, before the show, you were talking about, uh, Richard horse and some of the people that Ben worked with on unbranded as well. And it's not necessarily a wildlife film, but that's kind of the beginning of the, uh, adventure film. Jason, did you know, you, uh, you've seen that one, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I've actually seen all of them. <laughs> I've been a fan ever since unbranded, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, if you haven't seen any of these shows, you really, anybody that's listening really ought to go take the time and, you know, I don't know where they're all available at at this point, Ben. Maybe you can help us out with that later on in the end of the show. But, um, you know, just take the time to go watch these shows. They're great. They're Every one of them are very educational. Um, they all have a great story behind them. You know, Unbranded is the story of taking some wild horses and getting them trained up to go from uh, the north end of the United States to the south end of the United States and, and all the challenges that go along with that and uh, just a great story, and it just really touches on the issues, the modern day issues we have with the wild horses, right? So, um, well, wild and or feral horses. Um, but yeah, it's uh, just it's just awesome to to see a passion project be successful. And like Mike said, you know this this model that you've taken is really kind of that, right? It's like taking a passion project, something a story that you want to tell, and go creating that. Um, through hard work and some donations and, you know, funding it yourself in a lot of ways and having a lot of people volunteer to help and then, you know, taking it to the, to the public. And um, I think you've been successful in each one of those projects. So it kind of surprises me that you haven't had the opportunity to, you know, that they haven't come to you like Nat Geo hasn't come to you and said, Hey, we want you to make this feature film for us or something, you know, no, I'm still waiting for that call. <laughs> I, know. I hope that I know. email didn't go to spam. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Unbranded not too long ago, and um, what a cool project. I mean, what was the – and actually, Jason, they went from south to north. So they oh, sorry. So popped out of Mex from Mexico to, to the Canadian border. But what was the impetus? What thought process? What just says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to catch some wild horses, and we're going to go from Mexico, which just seems so daunting of a task, right, to just travel on a wild horse – and what struck me about the whole thing, and I've filmed wild horses a lot, and they're just awesome. They all have personalities, as you guys point out in the whole, in the film. But the way that these horses conformed, or that's the wrong word, but the, the relationship you guys had with those horses from start to finish was just awe-inspiring. It was so cool just to see how these horses were part of the team at the very end. And, you know, more than the very end. I mean, but at the very beginning, when you guys run around in those cactus you're thinking, mm, this is going to be a tough go. It took a couple hundred miles before we all realized we were on the same team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but after that, it was, uh, it, it was, and and I mean, I've got I've got those horses today. I've got five of them, and uh, I mean, they're old now. Uh, that trip was ten years ago, and those horses now are between 16 and 22 and uh that's cool but like i've got a two and a half year old girl and she's out there riding this horse around that at one point in time was you know terrifying to even step in a round pin with and to kind of see that change over over his life has been really neat to where now you know she'll walk up and try to climb on the saddle and stuff and feed him and whatnot 
Um, but yeah, that was, that was the second time that we, that we did that trip, Michael, to, to answer your question on how it got started. Uh, the first time we did it, uh, I was 19 and I just got burned out of college. I made the stupid mistake of going into the business school and found some really good influences in my life that convinced me that it was a good idea to drop out and just ride horses instead. So we tried to figure <laughs> out what exactly that meant. And uh, the summer previous to that, I did some packing in Rocky Mountain Park for this outfit and just kind of fell in love with it. And, you know, I'm very much a map map type of guy and the continental divide trail was kind of growing in popularity at that point in time and uh we just decided to do the continental divide trail but with horses we were all broke and um you know the cheapest place to get really good horses is the bureau of land management so we went and adopted a bunch of you know five to eight year old mustangs that did that trip and um in 2020 and then that was such a impactful experience on my life. And I really got to like watch that transformation of these wild horses over the course of several months from this animal. That's just terrified to this, you know, very, um, you know, part of the team that, you know, I, I wanted to do that again and to, uh, film that experience and to kind of film that whole thing and we planned another big trip, uh, which, you know, culminated in the film unbranded. And, uh, for that one, I met a filmmaker out of Bozeman, Montana, a guy by the name of Phil Baraboo that directed it. And then, um, a lady by the name of Cindy Meal, who made the film buck, she heard about it and wanted to get involved. And to be very honest, I was not really it, like a serious part of the creative process of that film. Uh, I was just, you know, a character and kind of helped get the ball rolling. But that movie turned out so much better than I had ever kind of imagined it would. I mean, it's a cool movie and there's like kind of somewhat of a cult following to it as well. Uh, like I'll go to, you know, different trailheads across the West whenever we're, you know, doing pack trips and stuff and, um, you know, like people watch unbranded if they do, if they do pack trips and that's, that's really neat to have made a film that, um, has inspired lots of other people to drop out of college and get a bunch of Mustangs. <laughs> <laughs> just the trials and tribulations of just everything that goes into that trip. How long was it? It was like, how many months were you guys out there from start to finish? About five and a half with the training time before. Yeah. It's a huge commitment. The things you guys got to see was, I mean, and I'm sure we just saw a fraction in the film of what you guys saw, but some of the stuff that you were able to just experience both terrifying and just awe-inspiring had to be just phenomenal. I miss it, man. I, every day, every day I think about it and you know, those days doing those, those big, those big journeys or just the day I guided elk hunts for, four years between Jackson and Cody, like those days that you spend all day working outside with horses, like such tangible problems of like, okay, where is their water? Like finding that, uh, physical lifestyle 
just the best living. It, I'm so glad that I did it. And uh, it's so hard to do because there's so many reasons not to do that. And, you know, now that I have a, a two-year-old, that kind of ship has sailed for me for, for at least a little while. But I always try to encourage people that are wanting to do a big hike or a big horseback ride or a big journey that doesn't really make financial sense, that doesn't really make sense at all. Like I know very few people that do embark on something like that that ever regret it. Most of them look at it as the most cherished chapter of their lives. I grew up horseback and some of the country that you guys went through was not far from where my family's ranch was. And you went through, so, you know, part of this is educating people on wild horses in the United States. And there are only a few designated wild horse herds versus the multiple feral herds. But the area that you guys rode through in Wyoming to, to, to stay on the uh, Continental Divide Trail is right through the heart of wild horse country in Wyoming. How did, how did that go? Did you guys have any run-ins and, and how did the, the horses that you were on respond to that if you did? You know, fortunately, we, we only had, the only problem that we had with feral horses was actually like other down in, in Southern Utah, uh, down there kind of like by Kanab and on the Perea river. That was the only area where we had issues with feral horses sweeping away our horses in the night. And similar to that scene in the film where we lost our horses, we lost our horses a lot worse at a, a different time. We lost them for like 40 miles over the course of two and a half days, which now I look back on it. It's like, God, what were we thinking? Uh, <laughs> I mean, we just tracked him down. Johnny tracked him down um, and, and found him. So um, that was the only spot where we had issues with, with barrel horses kind of running our stuff off. After that, we were pretty, pretty serious about our horse retention. <laughs> And you mentioned something in the film too, where you said, I mean, we're not talking very much about photography or filmmaking here, but it's just such an interesting story. And especially with those horses, there was something said in the film to the effect that you don't think that there would have been many breeds of horses that could have done it like a wild horse did it. The wild horses just have that ability to negotiate all the terrain so much better than a lot of the other horses that might be a purebred Tennessee Walker or some other type of horse. Is is that, was that the, is that the right, did I take that right or say that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, these wild horses, they're growing up, you know, in the great basin, primarily Nevada has about 80% of them. And then, you know, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Idaho, I'll have some as well, but you know, from the moment they're born, they're walking around with bare feet, you know, several miles a day, sometimes over 10 miles a day over all sorts of terrain. So they know how to move through that terrain. Um, I mean, they have to, their, their life depends on it. And not only does their life depend on it, the lives of, you know, dozens of generations, sometimes prior to that animal, all of their ancestors depended upon it sometimes for, you know, up since the late 1700s, early 1800s, some of these bands have been 
reproducing where it's the survival of the fittest that has just passed on these genes to create this extremely sturdy, tough animal. Uh, like I've got five horses. I've had to call a vet one time in the 13 years of horse ownership that I had. And that's because I had a horse get um, choke on a, on a big horse cube uh, and we had to flush it out. But um, like their feet, I don't have feet issues. Uh, I don't have lameness issues. And they're just extremely tough, sturdy animals that make great trail horses, that great make great mountain horses. And, you know, once you kind of depending on the age in which you adopt that wild horse, you know, if they're, if they're foals, it's kind of like training any other horse, but if they're older, you know, they have a, a hump that you got to get across. And once you kind of do that 30 or 60 days or hundred days on some horses, on some of those older horses that haven't been touched and they kind of accept the fact that, you know, you're a human and you're not there to eat them uh, and get over that fear then they're really similar to training any other type of horse. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're great for backcountry travel for hunting. And, um, I've got five of them and we do pack trips each year. Pretty awesome. Anybody that hasn't seen it, go watch it. Cause it's an amazing film. So to fast forward into filmmaking type stuff on that episode of the master wildlife filmmakers podcast, you had said something about, I don't get to shoot too much, but, I just happened to be cruising through Big Bend and I saw a mountain lion. I happened to have a camera next to me. So I pulled over and I shot <laughs> yeah. a wild, wild mountain lion. So how does that go down? So you, you've spent, I mean, you wear all the hats, right? But so, and you probably do more directing, producing, writing than anything, but you do get out and shoot too, right? Yeah. I get out and shoot probably about a third of the year or so. Um, Cause I mean, you're right. I, I do direct and, and write and edit and I'm most valuable doing that. But I write the best and I learn the best whenever I'm on location shooting. I mean, it's really hard to sit in an office and get an understanding for a place that's much easier to go there and meet the people and taste the earth and, you know, feel the water and everything. Um, so I shoot a lot in that particular mountain lion. Um, that was the second time that I've seen uh, a wild mountain lion. But I was in Big Bend and I had spent the day filming this um, bear eating acorns in this tree. And uh, I spent all day with him and got back to the truck and um, just was lazy and didn't break my camera down, to be quite honest. I just <laughs> put it in the back seat and then put the belt buckle on it. Um, and then put the tripod right below it. So it had fresh battery and everything just sitting in it. I leave and I turn out of the parking lot and I'm going and my, my friend Logan is with me and he just grabs my arm and just looks forward. And there is a mountain lion on the road, 20 yards away from us, 15 yards away from us and just walks into the brush. So I drive up there and just park my car, that whole like courtesy thing of like getting off the road, screw that there's a mountain lion. Uh, <laughs> grab my camera, get my tripod and I get set up on it. And there's this ridge on the other side that's fairly open. 
and I'm assuming this cat's going to go over that ridge and I'm going to get this, you know, nice shot, you know, 60, 70 yards away. I sit there and nothing. And I'm waiting and I'm being patient and I'm being quiet. There's people driving by and they're like, what are you doing? What do you see? And I'm like, oh, there's the quail. <laughs> uh, and uh, Logan, who was with me, he eventually drops down to the pavement and he looks underneath the brush and that cat is not on the other side of the ridge. It is like 10 yards away from us, maybe tops. And he drops down and locks eyes with it and it locks eyes back. And he's like, masters, masters. <laughs> so I get my camera and uh, drop down my legs and was just able to find this little hole through the brush and uh, cranked it up to 400 and was able to get this this really nice long uh, take of this mountain lion and uh, yeah it made the film I, I actually think that shot that we used was about 50 seconds long that's the one that just like looks at you and stares you in the eye and it's almost uncomfortable looking at him for that long um, but yeah that was the only the only uncollared wild cat that I've been able to to long lens so far well, you are probably what two percent out of a hundred, or two two out of a hundred that have ever had a chance to do that. Just luck into that situation, anyway. Sheer luck, no skill <laughs> involved at all. <laughs> yeah, but I was out there, you know, and that's right. Like, exactly. Like you get lucky. The more time you spend in the field, the the more opportunities you have to increase your odds of getting lucky. Yeah, my son called me one morning and. He was, he was out. He says, dad, got a mountain lion, got a mountain lion right now. Found out where he was. By the time I got out there, it had only moved about a hundred yards, but it was across the river. Um, couldn't get much of a look at it, heavy brush, but we, we sat there forever and he got to, he got to see it and experience it. Didn't get much as far as any, any footage at all, really, except for you could see hide going through the brush. That was it. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the best place to film them, and i i i haven't I haven't figured it out yet. But I did go down to Patagonia two years ago to just see how they do it, because um, I mean, you can go down there and just consistently get mountain lion footage every single day, which is so strange to me. Um, but the first day I was down there we saw seven mountain lions in a, in a day and it was just so weird because they just didn't act like the mountain lions that we have at all or mainly because i haven't been able to observe behavior that much um but if you guys get the chance to go do that, it, it's really cool to, to not only get to photograph them, but just to kind of see how they move across the landscape, where, where they like to hang out in the daytime, where they like to walk around. Um, and it's, it's neat, but I, but I haven't been able to find a spot similar to that in the United States. And I, and I don't know if one exists, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think if it did, people would be onto it and, Certainly that's not been the case. There's a few people that are more adept at, at locating them than others, but I don't think there's that honey hole, you know, where you can reliably go and, 
and find a cat. I think you're working with the right person though on this next project. You know, we got a yeah, little insider sure. information. So I think that working with Casey is going to be a huge help. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I, I do think there is a spot out there somewhere that you can reliably see them if you look for them. Um, and yeah, I, I would love for that opportunity to be there for photographers because I think it'd be great to have more just images of mountain lions running around the internet and, and, you know, like kind of take away some of that mystery at the same time. I love the mystery, but mm -hmm. I feel like people are just strangely afraid of mountain lions. And like, it's like a hundred pound cat that kills deer and like never kills people. I don't know why people are afraid of mountain lions, but they do have, I think it's like that because you never see them. That's just like this mystery, almost kind of like bad guy presence on the mountain. Or when it's you the do same as with wolves. Yeah. When you, when you see a mountain lion on video, it's typically when somebody's run into it in the back country, it's defending cubs and trying to either back them off or distract them, pull them away. You know, one of the two. So you see that crazed cat behavior. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Or you, or you see them treat whenever, you know, you got yeah. a bunch of dogs baying them and they're pissed, which is, yeah, which is unfortunate, but it's, uh, there is a lot of mystery to them. I've, you know, like you said, had a couple encounters. One of them, I was nervous cause I had my kids with me and the cat was definitely hunting and we just made a lot of noise threw a lot of rocks, sticks and backed out. No problem. But there, there's certainly cats around everywhere. I always tell people when I'm talking to, you know, youth school groups, that kind of thing, you know, you may never see a cat, but you can rest assured that one's seen you, especially in the area in Wyoming where we live. They're, they're pretty abundant. But again, seeing them, seeing their tracks is one thing, seeing the cat, that's another while we're on the topic of cats uh, in deep in the heart, you guys talked a little bit about the trapping and stuff of those cats. And there's thousands of traps that are out there that are just set with some prehistoric game laws. Do you think the awareness that you put on that subject and with the amount of people that saw that would be something that would allow for the, the change in that sort of thing with the trapping? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, just for, listeners that aren't familiar with texas mountain lion laws um outside of texas you know all western states you know they're considered a game animal and they're primarily managed by quota where you know x amount of, of mountain lions are, are harvested each year and you know there's a balance like there's not going to be a mountain lion population crash and you know at the same time they're taking some consideration with some of the prey um, in texas we don't have any they're, they're not considered a game animal uh, so there's no management of, of mountain lions at all. So it's, um, you know, open season. There's no harvest limits. There's no bag limits. Um, and then, you know, another thing is there's, there's, there's no monitoring. There's no harvest reporting. Like, you know, in New Mexico, whenever you harvest a mountain lion, you call us hotline. And then they say, all right, thanks, man. You got that in X County. And then, that way over the course of the season, they can say, all right, you know, this year there was 300 mountain lions harvested. That's the same as last year and the year before and the year before that, like everything's cool. You know, mountain lions are good. Everybody's, everybody's not happy, but mountain lions are doing fine. 
and in Texas, we don't have any restrictions on take, and we also don't have any any monitoring at all. So we don't know how well the mountain lions are doing. And at the same time, we have this population that is expecting to double over the next you know, three decades. And then we've got this extreme land fragmentation because Texas is all private land. So I, I advocate for, and I would really like to see Texas parks and wildlife department, you know, actively put together this management plan that says like, Hey, like, yeah, this is a private land state. Like, yeah, mountain lions eat sheep and goats sometime. And those guys need to die. But at the same time, this is an important species, like for the culture of the state that has lived here for all of time. Like, let's set aside some safeguards to ensure that that's going to continue to persist for, for the future, because right now we do not have that guarantee in Texas. Um, you know, our West Texas population uh, around Big Bend area, you know, pretty much everything in the Trans-Pecos, that population, I don't, I'm not particularly concerned about, my, primarily because there's so much immigration either from Mexico or out of New Mexico. But the South Texas population in particular, between like Del Rio and Laredo, some of that really thick South Texas brush country, um, you know, there's just a lot of stressors on that population. And there's really no data on how many cats there are, how well they're doing, and all the data that does exist indicates that there's some problems. So I certainly hope that, you know, shining a light on that with Deep in the Heart will, will lead to some change. Uh, all indications is that it is going to lead to something at least being seriously discussed. Um, you know, in addition to the film, we had this, um, this opportunity for people to, you know, say, Hey, I support mountain lion regulations in Texas or mountain lion management in Texas. And we had like 25,000 emails get generated off that, that went to like text parks, wildlife folks, and a lot of other people saying like, Hey, let's have just some, some sane science-based management here or at least monitor the cats to where we know that they're not going to, um, you know, to be extirpated. And in response to that, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has put together a advisory board of like 15 people that are going to be, you know, creating some suggestions for Texas Parks and Wildlife to, to do. And honestly, I think that's a really, um, responsible thing for the department to do rather than to just kind of like jump on and, and, and change something at the whims of a film, like, you know, get that stakeholder involvement, get people around sitting around a table and, and really spend some time on figuring out, you know, what, what is realistic for Texas? Cause Texas is different. It, it really is. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of Texas that will never be hunted and that will never be trapped because that private landowner won't allow it. And then you've got other spots in Texas where like, you know, there's traps all over the place. And, you know, if it's brown, it's down. Uh, there's just this whole wide gamut of, uh, of values of landowners. And uh, it's tough conserving species like a mountain lion inside of that matrix because they require so much territory to make a living. They're not like an ocelot that needs 300 acres. They're this cat that can sometimes have, you know, hundred thousand acre plus home range. And even in big ranch country, that often means that they're still going on, you know, five to 15 different properties. And if one of those properties traps, mountain lions are so easy to trap 
they're kind of, you know, getting everybody else's cats. As you were talking about that, I was just kind of reflecting back a little bit too on the, uh, on the, uh, you know, the idea that this, you know, they call it the ghost of the Rockies, right? I mean, it's, it's not an easy animal to see. I've spent every one of us here on this, on this uh, podcast today have spent an inordinate amount of time in the outdoors, either through hunting and or for our photography or filmmaking and videography. And I've only seen two wildcats in my entire life and never even had come close to having an opportunity to photograph one. And I don't know, there's a part of me that like appreciates that, you know, that I think that's what's cool about it. And I'm hoping that at some point in my life, I will get that chance. And when I do, it'll be probably because I've earned it, you know, again, spending that time out there and actually actively going after those types of photos. And it'd probably have to be shoot something like you said, through tracking them or doing something like that. But when you finally get those shots, to me, it's kind of like one of those things where it's going to be so much more worth it. You know, it'll be so much more of a, of a reward because of the fact that it's so difficult to do. You know, and there's a reason that you don't see very many, you know, mountain lion photos on covers of magazines and things of that because they're just not easy to get. You know, even folks like Casey who have spent lots of time out in the outdoors, you know, I don't know how many hours and days and months and weeks he's spent out there trying to do it. And he's... He's been successful doing it, but he's had to put those days, weeks, and months into doing it to get the limited amount of footage in the photos that he has. So I don't know. I just think, you know, it's something that the average person's, unless you're lucky like you've been, right, and you just happen to stumble across one, which does happen. But again, you're out, right? And as we're driving around looking for wildlife and um, trying to get photos, uh, Kelly and I will often say, you know, it's been X amount of days and we really haven't had anything you know, kind of cool come up, you know, we're due, we're due, you know, we're due for a little bit of luck, you know, and it's funny how after you spend a little bit of time out there, it kind of does seem to be that way. You get a little bit of luck. So I don't know. I just think my thoughts were churning there about the fact that they are difficult to find. And I think that's a, that's kind of a cool thing. It is. And, um, you can also camera trap them and yeah, that is just, like, I don't consider myself to be a particularly good long lenser. I don't consider myself to be a very, like, I'm, I'm quite basic whenever it comes to long lensing and, and, uh, drone work, but my specialty is camera traps. And I love that excitement of walking up to a camera and seeing a mountain lion track going straight through my spread. And just opening it up and looking through that footage and wondering, like, did I, did I get the shot? Because it takes, each one of them takes months to get, takes so much dedication and just, um, it's, it's, it's the most sure way of getting mountain lion photos and videos. Um, and, you know, I think, I think long lensing them may be more like satisfying, but it's still incredibly addicting doing the camera traps for them. And it's possible too. Uh, and you also get all sorts of other cool stuff and you're also working full time. You're, you're a full time photographer whenever you're camera trapping, even whenever you're not in the field, you know, you're, you're out there. I've got, that's right. I've got 20, um, I have 26 DSLR camera traps in the field right now. <laughs> Holy cow. 
That's amazing. Working your butt off sitting there hitting the refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just hanging out here. I got I got ten in New Mexico on Jaguars, ten in Utah on Mountain Lions, and six and six on Ocelots in in South Texas. But it's just, I mean, it's the it's your bang for the buck. It's your cheapest way of getting the most amount of time in the field and opportunity to get something really special. Um, that's what we do with every, every camera trap sequence that we do is like, all right, we think we're going to do this. Let's try to give ourselves like 10 months to do it. And sometimes you get lucky and get, you know, a mom ocelot walking through crying out for their lost kitten and just get some type of crazy behavior that you could have never predicted. While you're on the, on the topic of camera trap, are you using the Cognosys or what, what kind of camera traps are you guys using? So we use, uh, the, I, I started off using T sheds, which is uh, a company based in, in Bristol. And we were using the Panasonic GH five S uh, for that. And that's what everything deep in the heart was. And then that particular camera model wasn't able to use the Canon R5. So we got, uh, so we, we switched over and are using Cognosys on the Canon R5. And, uh, I went with the R5 because it shoots, uh, in 8k and I'm not like a, I'm not like a, a pixel junkie and a bitrate dude. But um, what's beautiful about that 8K footage is you can take still grabs out of it that are like 17 JPEG megapixel equivalents. So you can have like a very large, beautiful print uh, of, the, of the 8K still grab. And then it also has this, this amazing eye, eye autofocus that R5 does. Um, so we've been we've switched over to the R5 as our as our primary camera trap, um, and, but the, the Cognosys system is great. Uh, I think the units are like seven hundred dollars a piece. The batteries we've been able to leave R5, 8K, like heavy battery intense units in the field, and have had the batteries last for for two months at a time, uh, which is just phenomenal battery life, and then. Um, Cognosys also makes a great light that communicates with the box so that an animal walks in front, the light turns on, it films for, you know, two minutes to five minutes or however long you want to. And, and it's, it's a good, simple, wonderful system. I highly suggest it. So do you find that the autofocus, the eye, the eye capture or whatever they call it, the eye recognition or whatever is pretty reliable? Cause I've been really leery to, that's exactly the system that I'm using too, but I've always just pre-focused and went with it. But are you feel like it's pretty reliable just to leave the eye? What do they call it guys? What's the eye thing called? Eye tracking. Eye tracking. Eye tracking. Eye Is the eye tracking pretty reliable at picking up a cat's eye? No, it's not. It should only be done under like a pretty specialty shot. Uh, I can send you some, some sample footage of, of lions and ocelots that I have with the auto eye tracking. So you can see what it looks like. But if you have something that's like a, a one a one attempt type of thing, I, I wouldn't trust it because it, it, it can mess up. But if you're shooting with like an 85 millimeter up to like a, you know, 200 millimeter or so, where you have a fairly compressed image and you shoot it straight down a trail, 
and that animal is going to be walking right at the camera the entire time within the same portion of the frame and you set you set your tracking right there it will lock in and you know shooting at 120 frames a second some moments where it's like walking right at you you can get really nice like 12 to, to 15 second long takes where not only is it crisp on the eye but it it's like a a focus pulling shot as it comes towards you which is badass and nobody's seen that coming <laughs> um and sometimes it works really well so there are specific <laughs> spots where you can use the 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 autofocus uh but it's not 100 percent for sure i would i would say probably maybe 50 percent even you know what's crazy to me is i've been playing more and more with the eye tracking and it blows my mind that you know depending on the critter like if it's an elk it kind of struggles if it's a moose or a bison it really struggles um you know but there's certain animals where it seems to really grab it and track it and what i found is that with birds it it can find the small eye on a bird flying in the sky at 20 miles an hour ripping by you no problem but it can't it can't find the eye on a on a moose or an elk or a deer or something you know it's just like it just i don't understand anyways i know it's just technology and it's getting better and better and pretty soon it will all be with this one be a conversation we'll be going it's so amazing you can just trust the eye tracking i i i lost the holy grail shot earlier this year jason on the eye track i had uh, uh, a set of camera trap in a lion den which is such a special opportunity and uh it focused on the leaf in front of the den and i had like mom and all the kittens out of focus behind her and the kittens were like jumping on her and all that stuff and but yeah i mean what you were talking about my heartbreaking like, don't don't trust it in a situation like that and i i was okay i was able to complete my scene because i had three other angles but that was like my type where i was going to go for like the full frame like little bitty kitten romping around in this little nursery bed and it that didn't work out you know so while we're on the topic of technology and cameras and stuff in your productions do you guys have like Give us a little snapshot into the different types of cameras that you're using, because you're probably using DSLR and RED and maybe Airy or what are some of the, the, the range of cameras that you guys use? Uh, so for our camera traps, we, we our preference is the R5, but we still have some GH5S. Uh, right now we're shooting a, a, a sequence on Ocelots for uh, a natural history company, and those are with A7S3s. Um, and, and they're great. They have really beautiful little light capability. I prefer the R5 simply because you have the ability with the 8K to like really crop in and, and punch uh, as well as do like, you know, digital moves or like little pans where it looks like you're tracking with the, with the character. Um, so that's our camera trap system uh, for underwater. Right now we're using the, the R5s as well. I, I really love the Canon image um, for our like a camera for cinematography, we have a Red Gemini, which I adore and deeply love. And then we have a Red Komodo. Um, and then we have the RF 100 to 500, which is a freaking amazing lens uh, with uh, 1.4 extenders that we use all the time. And then we have the 
24 to 70, or excuse me, not the 20, 40, 70, the 28 to 70, the, the larger lens, which in my opinion, the F2, I, I think that that thing looks like a prime glass all the way through. I love it. Um, every time, every time I think about selling that lens, because I don't use it enough for portraits or anything like that, I think there's no way I could get rid of that. It is a beautiful lens. And then with the F2 wide open aperture, you can do a lot of things with it as well. Yeah. And for video, I mean, it, it just, it seems like it, it, the depth of field, you can get it so low and it just separates that subject where it, it makes like a full frame image just look so, so nice. Um, and then we do have a 50 to 1000. I, I got that like six years ago at 1150 as a business expense and i waited and i was like you can't do it masters you don't do it don't do it like that's the stupidest thing you'll ever do <laughs> and then like i just bought it and that was the best decision i think i've made because all of our great sequences are shot on it and i've rented it out so much i've probably gotten like half my money back on it um and then we've got Mavic three drones, uh, which are amazing. And yeah, that's it. So top of the line gear. I mean, uh, really, really top of the line gear and not a day goes by. Right? I don't look at it and think to myself that we need to keep this stuff working all the time. Just keep it working, keep it shooting um, and give it a chance to get something special every day. Talk a little bit about your crew, because you got some pretty talented shooters and editors working with you, too. I do. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us are really self-taught. I mean, Austin, our top shooter, uh, I randomly met him like six years ago. He was mountain biking in the middle of the night, and I was shooting time lapses, and I had beer, and he didn't. And that just like started <laughs> this wonderful friendship. And uh, now, you know, we shoot together full time. Um, uh, yeah. And then just some really talented folks here in Austin. Skip hobby is kind of our, you know, experienced veteran that's based here. That's a wonderful teacher. Um, uh, he's 45 and has about 20 years or so experience in the field, but a lot of it were self-taught, you know, deep in the heart. That was my first experience shooting a natural history sequence editing a natural history sequence or directing it and made a lot of mistakes but i think that not knowing what i was doing was almost a good thing because if i had known if i knew now what i didn't know then whenever we started it i don't know if i would have started it realizing how big of a risk it was because we were only a few shots away from it not being a great film like if the ocelot footage didn't go through, if we didn't get the deer fight, that deer fight was badass. But like if we didn't get it, if we didn't get some of those amazing snake strikes, and then if the mountain lion didn't step in the trap, that film wouldn't have been nearly as as powerful as it was. And um, I I do think that was that's kind of what we did right on that film is because I didn't have a lot of experience and neither did everybody else. Everybody was working at a day rate that was, you know, really low myself included. 
and we prioritized just time in the field. And we just spent ungodly amounts of time in the field. And, you know, I look at the footage now after I've, you know, DP'd an episode for Nat Geo and I've shot a lot more. And a lot of the transitions in that film, they're not the best. Some of the framing isn't the greatest. Uh, There's some warp stabilization. But I don't think the audience really cares that much because there's stuff that actually happens like truly gripping footage where you don't have to like overproduce it and have whiz bangs and the cuts and like all these distractive little music cues and narrator where it's just way overproduced. You just let the footage speak for itself, let the animal speak for itself. And I think that's something that um, you can only get just by prioritizing time in the field and just getting cameramen out there and just waiting for those special moments to happen. I don't think there's any substitution for being there. Proper pre-production prevents piss poor performance. (laughs) (laughs) And then slug it out in the field. And like, if somebody doesn't like being in the field, you just got to immediately find somebody else. Cause there's a jillion other people who would love to take their role. It's like, all right, you're out. You don't like the ticks done. (laughs) So talk about your, uh, upcoming project the the if you you know however much you want to talk about it but i i uh well i don't even know i don't want to say the subject until you say it but um talk about what's coming up or what your next project is yes we've got two feature films that we're working on right now uh we're gonna do another movie in texas on on rivers specific you know just to the 12 different river basins that we have here and you know how unique and special each one of those are. We're going to do a wildlife story in each one. And then we're going to do uh, a feature length film on the Colorado River Basin and the American Southwest. And we're about halfway shot with that one. Uh, so that's most likely going to come out in 25 sometime. Um, so we're shooting that this winter and, and this year. And then we'll begin the edit in 2024. That sounds yeah, like a pretty lots. awesome project. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's also incredibly intimidating to like tell the story of such a massive region. But we're kind of starting at the headwaters, the Colorado, and looking at different animals that live at the different elevations, going all the way down to the Gulf of Mex or to the Gulf of California, to where you know by the time you see it start up there in Rocky mountain until you see it end at the Delta, you can kind of get a grasp of, of, uh, the different ecosystems that it passes through, you know, the different desert types, the different elevation zones. Um, and we've tried to find a different animal species that animal species and behavior that lives in each one of those little zones. So you can kind of see that, that the the story flow along with the water all the way down and that's got to be pretty tough too especially with the state of water and the droughts and conserving water and all the issues they're dealing with in the colorado this year or last year but this year colorado is getting a pretty decent snowpack so hopefully it'll turn around and you'll get not have the drought type conditions that have persisted for the last several years yeah hopefully so i hope i get a uh, cutthroat spawn and a salmon fly hatch this year. That's my goal. We will be doing pre-production with fly rods in hand. <laughs> <laughs> Sample. 
yeah yeah that's how we got all those redfish shots is we just went red fishing for like a week and then we'd catch them and then release them in front of the camera and they get swimming <laughs> off <laughs> tricks that footage that you had of the alligator guards was pretty cool the, in that, deep was, in the heart. Yeah. that was pretty special footage. that was special that was really special i had a i had a friend up there uh because they only they only spawn at a particular time the alligator gar they leave the riverbed during a flood and then they'll go out onto these floodplains and then they'll they'll spawn and the females release these pheromones and the males follow them out there and they'll release the eggs and the males go and fertilize the eggs and then like as the floodwaters recede those eggs go back into you know these little backwater ponds and stuff some of them make them back into the river and that's where you get your baby gar but the the floodwater conditions have to happen at a certain temperature that's right for the um for the eggs and then uh it, it also has to has to happen and you know we have so many dams and so much change to our river systems where if you don't have the conditions that allow that natural flood you don't get a gar spawn so you know in some years or, or sometimes even many years in a row in Texas, we don't have the right conditions for the guard to spawn. And we just got lucky again, like what I was talking about earlier with deep in the heart where we had these guards spawn and we literally rolled up and they were there right next to the truck. I got one flight of batteries out of an inspire two. did one flight, got all the aerials popped in the canoe, went and shot all the, stuff on the surface um just handheld with my friend jay in the back paddling me around and that was it that was the sequence after that it was done we stuck around for another six days and never saw it again so it was just right place right time got lucky that's how it happens yeah and had a good informant of like you know watch this let me know let me know when it goes and i mean that's that's the big thing that i mean that's what i spend probably a third of my time doing is just um, meeting people and asking them, you know, tell me about these animals that you study. Um, and then like, how, how can we get visuals is, is what's, what's possible? What would you like to see? And you know, what's neat or special about this species that hadn't people hadn't gotten to see before. And um, that research phase, I think is, is really exciting. Because there's so much cool stuff that people had never seen before. I think you could do a deep in the heart type feature on every state in the union and have a an incredible sequence or series. But the amount of All time right, Jason, that would be you got required. Utah. Yeah, Ron, you, got, you got Colorado. No, I'm in Wyoming. You got Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's got Colorado. Yeah, yeah well, Colorado would be a like you get rid of half the population, I'll do it. But <laughs> we keep getting all. Well, you guys got a problem in Texas too. I mean, people just keep moving into Texas, so it just keeps getting more and more populated. Uh, yes. Yeah. I know. I want to start like Department of Anti Tourism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. No. It's, it's thing. I mean, it's a great place to live. I don't blame anybody, but. It's just, it's just hard on, on, on wildlife. People are just hard. There's just so many of us. It's that balance and it's just so hard to find the balance. And there is, it's almost impossible to find the balance with too many people. It just, you know, and there's just not enough people that, 
they just have to live their lives and I don't blame them either. I mean, it's just one of those things, but they don't appreciate, you know, a collared lizard living in the, in the rocks and they'll just destroy the rocks to build a house or whatever. And you just lose the, that habitat. And it's just a tough thing. I don't know. It's just, it's going to change, but Texas is cool in that there is so much private land and it is so big you know, it's, it's always going to have some safety. And then you got places like the East foundation, which are pretty special. Yeah. I mean, Texas has amazing stuff, but there's good and bad things about everywhere. I mean, I, I love going out West and just getting on a trail and being like, all right, I can take this thing for as long as I want to go. And it's my land and I don't have to call or ask for permission. That concept of just, the ability to roam the earth is something that people who never leave Texans, Texas, like they don't, they don't get it. Like they have no comprehension that you can just go to a place and like, Oh, you want to camp there? Just like, all right, just go to sleep. Like just camp there. You don't need to get a permit. You don't need to tell anybody. Just, just do it. Just don't be an idiot. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the cost of that is, get a bunch of hooligans that you know scribble their names on the rock art or you know set idiot fires that you know light up entire canyons and uh, so yeah there's there's pros and cons to both but don't ever take your public lands for granted guys like you don't know how long you don't know how nice it is amen <laughs> what do you guys what do y'all have any like new new camera technology that you're going to try to break into this year oh mike's mike's busting into the new one i bought the raptor so i'm yeah i want to give it a go i've been using the um, helium for the longest time and you know and that's the go-to whenever whenever you're working on a project for the for the uh, bristol crew but uh the new raptor the new s35 that you can actually run the 50 to 1000 on that ought to be pretty cool I haven't, I just got it. I haven't actually even shot anything with it yet, but I think having 240, 240 frames at, at 4k could be kind of cool. And then 120 frames at 8k is pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. There's not going to be much need. I, I spent a lot of time running phantoms, you know, and, but a lot of times you can't run a phantom faster than 300 frames a second because you need a ton of light. And now if you can run 240 at 8k, they might run Phantom right out of business. Yeah, or force Phantom to come out with something that has better light sensitivity and is a little bit more user-friendly. Wouldn't be mad at that. No, no. But those things are just a, they're, man, you just got to be Johnny on the spot when you're running those Phantoms. You just, I mean, just predicting when you hit record and when to hit stop and then not record over what you just, I mean, I've screwed up so many shots where you just get too excited and then you hit record again. And then the, the last sequence you just shot is gone. Oh yeah. Cause you have to dump them off of that. Don't you? Or like send it to the hard, the hard, the external. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, Brandon and I are working on that. Uh, did you know that you can run camera traps with the GoPro? No, I didn't. So it's, it's actual GoPro software that you can install on your GoPro. And it's not going to be as good as an R5, but it's not going to be a camera tra or a trail camera either, right? So it's kind of in between there. But we run a car battery, which will run that camera for six or seven or eight days. And it's uh, it's proven to be pretty pretty awesome. So we've been playing a lot with that, just trying to figure it out. How does the how does the record functionality work? Is there a 
Is there like a beam break or a sensor that tells it to turn on and off? I haven't figured out what the technology is, but it's pretty reliable. But what I think it's doing is it's analyzing a scene. And then when something in that scene changes, it starts recording. Because it doesn't have an infrared sensor. Or it doesn't have a sensor that, that I can find where it actually no trigger. picks up movement. Yeah. So I think it's just analyzing that scene. Because we will get a lot of the wind stuff and we'll get a lot of the snow blowing stuff. But we're picking up good wildlife stuff too we haven't that's one of the reasons we want to try to get a cat a predator because that would be the perfect little camera you know like affordable camera to put out there and try to get some decent footage yeah i just got a gopro 11 and they're awesome i mean it's amazing how good the footage looks <laughs> right so i think if you if you you can put that software on 11 and then i just went down to walmart and bought a big battery in a marine box and a USB uh, power thing, and you just plug the camera in, and you're good to go. Cool. But you're only going to get six or seven days out of it. Yeah. Which, you know, if you have enough time to change it out, it's no big deal. Uh, I, I just got one to film beavers with. Do you all have any beaver filming experience, particularly in the lodge? Not in the lodge. Um, under Underwater with the GoPro. Oh, really? How did they react to the GoPro? They don't like it. I mean, it's like anything, but the the longer you're there, the more you, I mean, you put it in the sticks. They don't really have the best, the greatest eyesight. So it's not, it's not bad, but they don't, I mean, if you just ram a, you, you know, we tried to film Orca with a monopod, with a GoPro on the end of a monopod. And that's just kind of a cluster beaver. You got a little bit more time to work with, but they don't, they don't like anything coming into the water while they're swimming. Mm. Okay. So if it's there, you're fine. If, if you're trying to follow them, it's a little trickier. I mean, if you get them used to you, like any, any other subject, get them used to you and you know, I'm sure things would be fine, but it's just, you're going to have to spend, spend the time out there with them. One of the things I, I was deep in some YouTube videos the other day, and I found this this fellow that got the GoPro underwater housing, and then he got a coaxial cable and put it to it, and then you can go below the surface or you can set it like 100 feet away, and that coaxial cable carries the Wi-Fi back and forth. So what I'm hoping to do is figure out a way to like have several GoPros in the water they pretty much camera trap them where they stay out of the water. And then whenever I see them emerge, I can like hit my hit record, record button on that. and then it'll send the signals via Wi-Fi below the surface to all of my GoPros and like capture that scene. That's a whole pet project I'm working on right now. I'm pretty excited for I might message you on that because I've got a spot where I've been filming uh, soft shell turtles. And I think same type setup would work because they go, it's on some mineral deposit and they go up underneath these mineral shelves. And uh, I think if you had something similar, because you can see their shadow or you can have somebody stand up above them and let you know when they're out. But if you had something like that with the coax, like that probably would be best solution. I'll, uh, yeah, if you don't mind, I might email you on that. Yeah, I'll be doing R&D on it for the next couple of weeks. Uh, 
I'll let you know how, what what I find. And is this something where you're trying to shoot beavers in Texas itself, or is this part of that other project? Because then it's mostly nocturnal, right? So then you're going to have to deal with nighttime stuff. Um. Well, our our beavers in Texas come out in the daytime too. You know, do they? Do you see morning them quite and a bit? evening? Yeah. Not not. They're not as active as they are at nighttime, but they'll come out in the daytime. Oh, okay. Yeah, we we've got this beautiful lodge complex that has just loads of wood ducks on it. So we're going to do like a beaver story where they kind of created the habitat that the wood ducks are then using and then try to follow it all the way out through a wood duck nesting sequence. This is my, my big goal, but we'll see how far we get all the way to the chicks jumping out of the nest. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't it? They just like <laughs> take that big leap of faith and plop yeah, down on the ground. Cool can't thank you enough for your time i know you're a busy guy we appreciate you coming on and i know this is one thing you did do on the other podcast but you guys you know one other thing that you threw out there was that you're always accepting resumes you're looking for looking for the next guy to get out and shoot guy or gal to get out and do some shooting uh where can they find you you can find me on social media is pretty easy. Uh, ben, ben C masters and, and also our website, finninforfilms.com. Um, my new year's resolution is to do a lot less social media. So it may be a while before I respond back to you, but, um, yeah, reach out at finninforfilms. You'll see our emails. And if you have got a resume and you want to get into it, you know, please do send it over. We're doing a lot of filming in the Southwest and doing a lot of filming in Texas and are always looking for, for people to, you know, collaborate with and especially local folks, you know, like if you live in a place, it's so much easier to get somebody to shoot it because they know it so much better. And because it's, it's their home than it is for me to go up there, or, you know, somebody from Texas to go up there, or vice versa. So, yeah, I'm always looking for, for people to hop on board and uh, can't wait to send Jason uh, my 50 to 1,000 for him to go film that big mule deer now that I know he's got his whereabouts. <laughs> <laughs> I might need a little tutelage, but hey, I'm happy to try. I'll film <laughs> it. Jason video, can get the stills. Monitor yeah. it looks good and hit record, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that, it's that simple. <laughs> just don't touch the camera. Just, just let it just let it roll. Right. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure people know where to go if they want to watch your films. They is that on the Fins and Fur website too? Uh it is, but all of our movies are on Apple TV, on Amazon Prime, uh Google Play. Our most recent film is Deep in the Heart, a Texas wildlife story, which is, you know, primarily what we've been talking about. And it's it's available on all those platforms and is is easy to find. And uh, yeah, please do check it out. And thanks for having me on, guys. This has been a blast to to nerd out about cameras. Uh, gosh, I'd love to have you all to my garage sometime, and we could like really get into the nitty gritty of, of of camera traps. It's fun, but um, if not, then hopefully we'll get to see each other in the field sometime sooner than later. All right, thanks a ton, Ben, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in.
We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in 